0: invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We continue in our study called One Anothering. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a Bible in the pew, the rack in the pew in front of you. And Colossians chapter 3 is on page 984 of that Bible. And we will read just one verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. This is what the Lord says through the Apostle Paul. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to Your Word, we recognize that Your thoughts are not our thoughts, Your ways are not our ways, for Your thoughts and ways are higher than ours. Your words are not like our words. Your words have absolute authority and are absolutely true in any and all circumstances. And so we pray now as we look to understand and apply Your words that Your Spirit will help us to do so. I pray that You will fill me with Your Spirit as I speak and that Your Spirit will work in all of us as we hear. And that we would not be hearers only of the Word, but we would be doers as well and we pray it for the sake and in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Every human being, Christian or not, is a theologian. Everyone has some particular view of God that they espouse and that they live in light of that view. Likewise, Every single human being, whether they realize it or not, is a counselor. We all have a particular view of life and of problems, and we speak to one another with that view informing how we talk. At many times in life, we may need some counsel because we're going through one problem or another. So we turn to friends often to find out how are we supposed to think or what am I supposed to say or what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond? And our friends tend to look at us in the same way. We've all gotten that phone call. We've all made that phone call. Whether it was a child asking their friend what to do because someone picked on them a teen texting an, a friend because what am i supposed to do about my unfair parents or my unkind siblings or an adult asking another adult what how should i respond to a, a cruel boss or a lazy coworker or a parent seeking counsel from others on how to handle this new phase of parenting whatever it may be or a hundred other circumstances right We all give and receive counselors. We are all counselors. And actually, we need to be... That's not the first time I've said that. I've said it actually quite often. But we always need to be reminded because we forget. Because in our society, we've so professionalized the act of counseling that the idea that I could counsel you or that you could counsel me is dismissed by too many as less than, as ignorant, as bush league, as not up to snuff, as not worth your time. I mean, if you want to get some real help and real counseling, then you need to be paying for it. You need to find an expert. Now, friends, those in the professional secular realm of counseling want to help people. They want to help people grow and they want to help people change. They want to help people think better thoughts and live better lives and have better relationships. And we should be thankful for all of those motivations. But the question is, what kind of change needs to happen? If I am to change, what am I to change into? What are the better thoughts I'm supposed to think? what is the better life? What does a better relationship look like? And the answer to those kinds of questions can really only come from one of two places. It can either come from human thinking or from God's revelation. You see, When a paid counselor meets with clients, when a psychotherapist meets with patients, when a biblical counselor meets with someone in crisis, when a pastor sits down with those in need, when your friend calls you for help, it's either man's agenda or God's agenda. And the Christian conviction is that because God created us, because God God created us, God understands humanity best. And because God understands humanity best, He understands the design for humanity best. And God's revelation, what He has given to us, is sufficient for all of life and godliness. So God's agenda must be our agenda in our lives, in our problems, and when we seek to help one another in problems. And Colossians 3.16 is critical to help us to know what that looks like. Let me read it again. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, Paul is in the midst of what I would label a put-off, put-on section of this letter, All right. If you were to ask Paul what it means to live the Christian life, he'd probably begin as he does here at the beginning of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Well, what does that look like, Paul? Well, he gets to that in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on. He's saying, put these things off. Put these things to death. Put these things away. And then, in verse 12, he changes gears to putting on. What are we to do instead of doing that? Put on, then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he just goes on. And part of this putting on section is verse 16, that as believers in Jesus, we are to put on a different kind of relationship, a new relationship with the Word of God. The Word of God is to have a unique place among us and in us. And so I want us to look at this one verse, actually only the first half of the verse, under two headings. First is the place of the Word. The place of the Word. Now, Paul calls it the Word of Christ. Now, that's a unique phrase. You can read the Bible from cover to cover, and you should, and you know what you won't find anywhere else in the Bible? That phrase, Word of Christ, used like this. Are these is this a word about Christ? Are these the words spoken by Christ? What 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 is this? Well, when you think about what Paul is doing in the letter, it helps us settle what he means by word of Christ. You see, Paul's writing to a church in a city where Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism and ceremonialism are all the rage. And the influence of those things is twisting the gospel. It's distorting the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done. You see, these false teachers are claiming that Jesus isn't enough, that you need more than Jesus to be right with God. You need something, in fact, that's a little bit better. You need some special knowledge. You need particular kinds of obedience. You need to observe certain rituals. However, as Paul wants them to know and wants us to know, Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Friend, if you don't know that truth this morning, hear me. Those around you would seek with good intentions to have you try to find a right relationship with God in some other way. If you'll just be in church more, if you'll just read the Bible more, if you'll just do this more or do that more, if you'll just be a better father, if you'll be a better husband, if you'll just X, Y, Z, if you'll just give more. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but there is no good thing that we can pile on top of another so that we can climb our way to heaven on a ladder of our own making. We cannot make ourselves right with God. And when we say you must believe in Jesus and, and you put anything in that blank, you are saying that you must contribute something to becoming right with God. Jesus and obedience. Jesus and a ritual. Quite frankly, friends, in our area, There are places this morning where they would say faith in Jesus and baptism. Baptism is a testimony of our faith in Jesus. It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our only hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is faith alone. Oh, it's a good work. But we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. It's commanded, but it cannot save you. Only the blood of Jesus, applied by the Spirit of Jesus, saves us. And that's one of the problems here in this city. So Paul is writing to try to guard them from that error. Because faith in Christ alone is the only way of salvation, Paul focuses in this letter on the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. So, if you look back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, listen to how he describes Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You you either read that paragraph and you dismiss it and keep a low view of Jesus, or that radically changes how you think about Jesus. And then he says the exact same thing in uh, chapter 2, verse 9. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. There is no rule or authority above the Lord Jesus Christ. He is it. He is supreme. He is everything. When you have Him, you have God. This is what Jesus told His disciples, isn't it? He said, when you see Me, you see the Father. There's no distinction in our character. There's no distinction in our will. There's no distinction. Jesus, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is supreme, and because He is supreme, He is sufficient. You need nothing else. Do we really think we want to walk around and say, "Well, what I need is more than God to be right with God. What I need is more than what God prescribes to be right with God. What I need is these, are these other things. Friend, that is to put ourselves in the place of God and say, I will determine what it means to be right with God. But God Himself has said it is through Jesus Christ alone. You see, Jesus is more than a mere man. The baby born in Bethlehem was more than just a baby. You remember the hymn, how it goes? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. That is who Jesus is. And that's why Paul uses this phrase in this letter Word of Christ. When he says that, do you know what he means? Word of God. He is seeking to elevate the thoughts of the people in the Colossian church so that when they hear Word of God, they think Word of Christ. Now listen, you may have friends who say something like this. Well, you know, the Bible may say this or that. It may say that in the Old Testament, but Jesus never said anything like that. Meaning that it's not in the Gospels written in red, right? That's what that means typically. But in those moments, friends, I want you to remember Colossians 3.16. Remember that all the words of the Scripture are the words of God. And if they are the words of God, they are the words of Christ. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not a single dot or dash will go unfulfilled. Jesus never said, well, yeah, you know, you can just disregard everything before now. I've come to make a, you know, just, I've come to just eliminate anything that God may have said before. This is the real stuff. No, 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 no. Yes, we have a new covenant in his blood, but there is no dismissal of truth. God's character hasn't changed. The words of Christ are the words of God. Now, Now that we know what that phrase means, where does it belong? What place does it have among us? Where does it belong in the church? Well, Paul says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, normally the holidays are often a time for visitors, right? Sometimes out-of-town visitors. Maybe you're accustomed to having children or grandchildren or aunts or uncles or cousins come to your house and stay for a few days. Um, and maybe or maybe not, that maybe that will happen this year, maybe not, but you might say to someone who's coming to stay for a few days of the holidays, make yourself at home, right? You might say something like that. Well, now you're just trying to be kind, but this person doesn't actually make themselves at home. They don't come in and rearrange the furniture and uh, repaint the walls. Uh, they don't throw out stuff that you would want in your home. They don't redecorate, nothing like that, because they're guests, Well, what Paul is saying here is that the word of Christ is not a guest. It's not a visitor that just pops by or stays for a few days. It's a resident. And more than that, it should dwell richly. The word should have the run of the place. All right? Here's the thing, the word, of, the word of Christ is not a reclusive teenager, all right, who dwells in one room, decorates one room, hides away in one room, unless they're coming out to eat, all right? That, the Word of Christ is not like that. The Word of Christ is like a rich man who can walk into any room in the house and say to anyone in the house, any of his servants, do this, do that, and they do it. That's what the Word of Christ should be. That's what Paul is saying. You see friends, this w- room that we meet in, what a, what a gift it is to have this room and even to have a room that is larger than our congregation would normally need so that we can spread out in these days. What a great gift this room is for us. But this isn't where the Word lives. We can't be a church where the Word stays in this room. Or we all listen to it in this room. We all want to obey it in this room. We talk about it in this room. The Word must dwell richly. The Word must have authority. The Word must have freedom to walk into any room. Here or into any room in which we walk. And speak. And expect obedience. That is what it means for the Word to dwell richly. Now, this is written to the church as a whole, is right? You can't see it, but the you there is y'all. So, it's let the Word of Christ dwell in y'all. Alright? That's what He's saying. But here's the reality... The Word of Christ can't dwell in y'all unless it dwells in you. There's not some magical, mystical way that the Word of Christ will have authority over the whole church if it does not have authority in each of our lives. We cannot pretend that bending the knee together to it is enough. Every one of us in each day must bend the knee to what the Lord says through His word. And the question is, does it? Does the word richly dwell in you? Does the Word of Christ have the freedom to walk into every room of your life and speak with authority? Do you receive and obey it as the, good word, the words of a good and perfect father who loves you? Or do you balk at it as if it were a slave driver who wants to run and ruin your life? The word must be able to tell us, say this, do that, respond this way, think that way. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. That's the place of the Word. Secondly, what we see is the pattern of Word ministry. The place of the Word and the pattern of Word ministry. Paul doesn't just tell us that the Word should dwell richly. He tells us what it means for that to actually happen in the participles that follow the command. So, look at verse 16 again. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's the command. And here are the participles that explain what that looks like, where that happens. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Teaching, admonishing, singing. All parts of the Word dwelling richly in us. Now, I want to be an honest preacher here and say, we're not going to talk about singing. Okay? We're not even going to get all the way to singing today. We, but I will say this, it is sweet and encouraging and soul-enriching when the Word of Christ shapes our singing. Not just what we sing but how we sing. I heard the richness this morning. It's one of the things that I'm thankful for. It's one of the things that you can't really quantify when you go to a, you go to a pastor's conference and you know one of the, the dreaded questions that somebody's gonna be saying, well, so how are things going at your church? Well, I mean, I answer the same way all the time. Well, there are people sinning. There are people suffering. There are people growing. There are people uh, so struggling to grow, so it's a pretty normal, you know, but we're not, we're not splitting. Nobody's trying to fire me, so that's a good season. We're doing all right, but the, season, the ministry is the same. Even, I mean, I, I don't want to unfairly focus on only the great things that are happening. I don't want to only focus on the struggles. They both happen in every season of life and in every season of ministry, But one of the things you can't quantify is when somebody says, well, how are things going at your church? Well, you should really hear us sing. But I'm telling you, that's one of my answers. How are things going? Well, if you had heard us sing 11 years ago and you heard us sing now, I think you'd be able to hear a difference. Not just in decibel level, not just in melodic ability, but in richness. It's one of the things I thank God for. My focus this morning, though, is on the teaching and admonishing. These are two sides of the coin that we call biblical counseling. They're things that Paul does in his own ministry. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 28, he says it, "...him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom," that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That word warning in the ESV is the exact same word that's translated admonishing in Colossians three sixteen. All right? So what he's saying is, I admonish and teach. You should admonish and teach. This is the pattern of word ministry. He hands the mantle of ministry not simply to the pastors, not simply to the elders, not simply to some subset of gifted people, he hands it to the church. And he says, teaching and admonishing one another. So the first side of this coin of counseling, if you will, is teaching, okay, teaching. Now, every Christian does not have the gift of teaching, right? We would all recognize that. Some of you, if I said, who does not have the gift of teaching, some of you would very quickly raise your hand. That's me. Please do not call me up to say anything uh, because I, uh, uh." and that's the kind of answer you would get, right? So you wouldn't raise your hand. So you don't prepare formal lessons. We don't all take turns being up in front of the group speaking, this kind of thing. So what does it mean? If if we're supposed to teach one another, what does teaching actually look like if it doesn't look like that? Well, this kind of one another teaching is something that happens in our conversations. Conversations about life, conversations about the issues of the day, conversations about problems. You see, one of the Christians' goal as we talk about anything is to bring to bear what is it that the Bible says about this? How would the Bible inform a conversation about parenting? How would, the, how would the Bible inform a conversation about a teenager thinking their parents are un, unfair or their siblings are unkind? How, how, would, how would the Bible speak to, to one who's concerned about a cruel boss or a lazy coworker? What would the Bible say? How am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? That's where it comes out. Every other week, I get together with a couple of other pastors, and we're reading books together. So we read a chapter, and every other week, uh, we come together, we eat lunch, uh, uh, and we discuss the book. Now, none of us comes to the table as a teacher, okay? We don't say, well, this week, you're teaching. We don't do that. But but all three of us, at, at separate times, have said how much we have learned from those lunches from those conversations about the Lord's Word and about the Lord's work. That's the kind of organic teaching that we do. When a friend wants to know, asks what to think or say or do about a problem, part of our response is teaching. We give information that is meant to be imparted into life. That is teaching. The question is, what will you teach when he or she calls? That's a question. Will you teach entitlement? Telling them what you do and don't deserve. Will you teach the gospel of self? That you just need to look out for you. Will you teach relativism? Well, whatever you say is best is probably best. Will you teach fatalism? You can't help how you feel. It is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Will you teach karma? You just need to do good and good things will happen. Will you teach emotionalism? You know what? You should just go with your gut and listen to your feelings. Will you teach revenge? Well, you should probably give her the silent treatment until she gets the clue. You should give him a piece of your mind. Will you teach, now hang on, this is a long phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism? which means that God's not all that involved in our problems he just wants you to do good and be happy that is the prevailing notion of what it means to live this life with any kind of God conscience in our society he's not really involved but what he really wants is for you to be happy and just do good or will you teach Christian doctrine will you teach that God has purposes in our pain and we should pursue them That we're not to repay evil for evil, that we're to die to ourselves, that we're to trust and obey, and so many other things that the Bible would say to us. Here's the fact of the matter, all right? When that friend calls, you will teach something. If you respond at all, you will teach something. The question is, Will the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach or will it be like the Word of Christ is just a visitor you allow to stop by when it's convenient for you? Teaching. Teaching. The other side of the coin is admonishing. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This is, this is still a kind of instruction, but it's a particular kind of instruction. It's meant to correct wrong thinking. It's meant to correct wrong behavior. It's meant to set us right where we've gone wrong. You see, when we're in the midst of problems, do you know that one of the things we can lose very quickly is right perspective and right thinking? Because if you imagine going to an IMAX theater, which I don't know if any of them are currently open but you know you have these 3D IMAX theaters and they've got this whole wall you know this whole wall of screen. It's like it's engulfing you right when you're in the midst of problems the only thing that you can see on that IMAX 3D screen is the problem the problem the problem the problem and when you only see the problem and you see nothing else your thinking will go wrong very very quickly Because God is nowhere in that problem, when all you see is the problem. And that's why we need one another to come along when things go wrong and say, oh, you're you're actually thinking uh, in terms of what you deserve, or you're thinking about revenge, or you're thinking about emotionalism or fatalism or any number of other errors, right? And so we have to bring the Word of God into these things. Because God has placed you in their lives to be that kind of help. Now, you may say, well, that seems like too big a task. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's say you're in the midst of a problem. You may be in the midst of a problem right now. If you were thinking wrongly about life and problems, if you were thinking in a way that was going to lead to decisions that would make things worse rather than better, that would dishonor the Lord rather than honor Him, wouldn't you want someone to tell you? That's not a rhetorical question. Would you want someone to tell you? Well, then do unto your friend as you would have them do unto you. Because it's not just that we start thinking wrongly, it's that we're blind to the fact that we're thinking wrongly. That's why we need one another. We need to help one another to think properly so that we can do rightly. And we do that by the Word of Christ dwelling richly in our response. The Word of Christ steps in and says, This is where things have gone wrong. This is what the truth is. Think about things that are right and good and excellent and praiseworthy. Well, you say, I'm not equipped for all that. That sounds like specialist kind of work to be able to do that. Anybody feel a little overwhelmed by that? Feel like, well, how is that supposed to happen? Well, shouldn't we just get a specialist in? Shouldn't I just have your number on speed dial, Toby? Isn't that how this should happen? Well, actually, no. Let me answer that idea of it just being too big a task of not feeling equipped with four things. First, this command is general. This isn't a command to the specialists in the congregation. This is a command for every Christian to be involved in teaching and admonishing one another in relationship with one another. Second thing, your friend is going to involve you in the problem whether you're equipped or not. Do you know that? They don't call you up, and the first question is, so how many, uh, how many training classes have you taken before I ask my question? They don't do that. They call up, they say, help. So your friend is not going to respect your I'm not equipped enough there. They're just going to call you anyway. The third thing, it's interesting. In Romans chapter 15, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That word instruct there is the same word we get admonished from. Did you know that when Paul wrote those words, he had never been to Rome? He had not seen or met these people. He hadn't trained them. All he knows is that they are Christians, they have the Spirit of God, they have the Word of God, so he is confident that they are full of goodness and knowledge and able to do this. They are able to do this. The last thing I would say is if you do want to be trained more, then you need to sign up. We have a partnership with Roddenstaff Ministries. You need to sign up for the next class. If you have never taken any kind of class before, Semester one will be on Tuesday nights. It'll actually be down in New Whiteland. If you've taken the first class and you want to take more, it will be here. If you want to wait until it's here, it will start in the fall. And if you want to do some reading until then, let me know, and I will help you get started on thinking about these things. Can I just tell you that from my experience... A feeling of unworthiness and inability. If that is what ruled which ministries you would and wouldn't do, I would not be here. In this place. This place. Doing this work. And I know many, many other pastors who would not be in this place because I didn't, I didn't, do, I, I, I didn't follow this path because I felt like, you know what, I think I'd make a great pastor. The Lord set me apart. I have a desire to do it. It's been affirmed that this is God's call on my life. The question isn't, are you sufficient to do X, Y, or Z? The question is, is God's Spirit and God's Word sufficient? And that answer has to be yes, all day long and twice on Sundays. admonish one another, teach one another, how, he says, in all wisdom, with a right understanding of the Word and the ability to connect what the Word says to real life. This is something we ought to be doing all the time in our own Bible reading. We don't just read the Bible and tick the box and go away. We want to read the Bible and think, how should this affect how I think today, how I speak today, how I live today? That is what wisdom does. Wisdom moves us into applying the Word of God to our lives. And it does take time, it takes effort, it takes time to develop. Those who have been doing this longer, who have been thinking about the Word's connection to life, it, it, does, it is stronger the longer that you do this. However, we need God's help. So that's why we need to pray for it. In fact, at the beginning of this letter, Paul prays that the people would have this kind of wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays for it. He doesn't say, from the day we heard, we've been encouraging you to go off to seminary so you will have wisdom and understanding. He says, we pray that God will give it to you. Does He do it through the means of study and life? Yes, but God must give it. And then James says the same thing that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who generously gives to all without reproach, and it will be given. Friends, part of God's design for us as a church is to teach and admonish one another, to counsel one another, to speak what is right and help correct what is wrong as we interact with one another. There is an arm of counseling that is more formal and happens in crisis. But the majority of the counseling that will happen in any local church is not that. The majority of the counseling that will happen in any local church is one person stopping another after church and saying, Hey, I'm walking through this. Can you help me? A phone call from one person to another. God's call on us is to let the Word of God, let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. He says, be sure God's Word shapes your counsel to one another. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before You thankful for Your Word, thankful that it is sufficient, it is authoritative, it will never lead us astray. God, we are humbled that You include us in Your work in the church. We hear this command to teach and to admonish. And for some of us, it overwhelms us God, I pray that you would give us grace so that the task of teaching and admonishing would drive us to your word, that your word would dwell in us richly, that we would have deeper concern to know you and know what you say so that we can think about our own lives and our own problems with clarity, biblically, and so that we can speak to one another in ways that are helpful. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people committed to counseling one another, to teaching and to admonishing in all wisdom. May your word dwell richly in us. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.